Hello and welcome to this edition of the Ian Abernethy podcast. You can watch videos and listen to other podcast episodes by visiting www.ianabernethy.com. So, without further ado, here's Ian Abernethy. Hello everyone, I'm Ian Abernethy and welcome to this month's uh, podcast. We've no main theme this month, uh, simply because uh, the questions and answers uh, that we're doing were running a bit long. I've, obviously, you haven't heard them yet, but I've recorded them already. And uh, one of the things, the feedback we've had is to try and keep the podcast down to a manageable length. So uh, I've got a couple of pieces, main themes, ready to go. I've got one on multiple op- uh, opponents that we've written. Uh, I've got one on self-defense law as well. And we've got a couple of other things uh, to go. But in last month's podcast, which was on uh, visualizing training we didn't do any questions and answers at all so I thought we'll save those main themes for uh, an upcoming podcast and we'll concentrate on the uh, the Q&A in this one and because there's a lot of interesting topics uh, so I hope uh, you'll enjoy what we're going to discuss um, all kinds of bits and pieces relating to Qatar and history and self-defense and other bits and pieces um, always feel that when we do these question and answer ones I just need to kind of preface this with the you know I, I acknowledge that I am not the kind of uh, the be all and end all on these you know I'm not saying that my answer to these questions is the final indisputable word on it at all you know um, I'm working on the assumption that when people ask questions it's just because they want to hear what my views are on it they, they think it would be an interesting talking point uh, and they'd like to hear that on the podcast um, I know for a fact there'll be parts of this that you know many of you well there's thousands of listeners to them so there's bound to be there'll be parts of it where you don't agree with what i'm saying or you've got your own take on things and that's exactly as it should be i think that's healthy as general macarthur said he said you know if everybody's thinking the same then somebody isn't thinking so uh, i'm not saying this is the only way you can view these topics or this is the best way to do, do to approach them i'm just saying this is my particular take on things and i hope that you find my uh, my take interesting um i say so we've got you know a lot of really good questions so I, i'm sure you'll enjoy listening to it at least uh, that's the hope um uh, only one quick announcement to make and then we'll get straight into it it's just uh for those that haven't seen them yet just a reminder that we've set up the uh we've been doing a lot of videos uh, practical katabunkai videos uh on both on youtube and the website and we've been averaging uh two a week um so there's a lot of them have been added very quickly my aim is to get about 50 of them done before the end of the year so hopefully that'll provide a nice library of uh, material for everyone as well so it's all online just you know few clicks pop along and have a look at it so if you go to ianabernethy.com and then click on the video part of it you can look at all of them there you can also find the videos on youtube uh if you, the username the channel name is practical katabunkai uh if you want to go along there and have a look and it's just you know clips from uh, seminars and club teaching and things like that and uh, but hopefully you know the, the, there's things on there that you'll uh, find interesting okay so as i said i'm going to keep the introduction really short we've got lots to talk about i appreciate everybody submitting the questions and i hope you find my uh, answers to them uh, interesting okay i'll hand you over to me Uh, the first question we have is on breathing for karate uh, from Neil Webster. And it says, I'm confused with this one. Uh, I tried breathing through the nose only as I'd read about boxers doing this as it helps with stamina and helps to protect the jaw by keeping it predominantly closed. However, I've since been instructed that this method is incorrect for karate and that I should breathe in through the nose and out through the mouth. Is this to do with impact power, uh, i.e. does 
breathing out through the mouth help increase impact? And if so, wouldn't that be useful for boxing? Does breathing techniques vary from one form of uh, martial arts to another? See, I, I, I'm, I'm totally with you on this one, Neil. You see, what, what we find is, I, I would suggest, if I'm going to make it as simple as I always like, that the important thing is that you breathe. <laughs> Um, it, it, so long as you're getting the oxygen in, you know, uh, and you, you, to help kind of, you know, reconstitute the ATP and, and keep yourself going well, it's fine. Now, obviously, from a tactical point of view, you don't want to be breathing with your jaw hanging wide open and your chin near your chest, because if it gets whacked, there's a much better chance of that jaw breaking. So, uh, I do get that, you know. Um, also, of course, you know, if you're using gum shields and things, for, it varies a little bit as well, you know, because, again, that can have an effect on how you breathe and um, how you're going to hold it. You can get some gum shields now that do allow you to clamp on the gum shield. It'll protect top and bottom, and there's a little hole through the middle, so you can still breathe in through your mouth while the jaw is still secure, you know. There's a... So, anyway, but I would say we just breathe, and, and we do get this. What you'll get within different styles and different systems is people uh, will say, this is the way we want it done, you know, so, but in that, there's often other ways to do it effectively too. So, I'll just to quickly go off topic for a second, but to give an example that, you know, people will easily relate to, is the old argument, do you hit with your front two knuckles or your back three knuckles? See, now, we can argue about in karate, you know, if my students say to hit with my front two or my back three, I go, it's your front two, right? But we acknowledge that human beings aren't flat, you know, so <laughs> um, they're soft in certain places too. So when you hit them, you hit them with the front two and all the other ones sink in. Um, or you went to hit him with the front two and he twisted his head a little bit and you ended up hitting with the back three. So it becomes a stylistic or an academic argument. And I think the same kind of thing we have with breathing too. Um, through, as I've gone through uh, the martial arts, I've been told uh, contradictory things all the time. Um, you know, you should be on your toes when you move. You should keep your heels down when you move. You should breathe through your nose. You should breathe through your mouth. Um, and what that is, is that style has found a, a favoured way of doing it. Uh, what I would suggest to make it simple is for my own students is just breathe. Just breathe. Um, the way that I breathe may not be the same way as them. But if, if they're, it's working for them, um, the feel that they're coordinating the breath nicely with the movement and with the technique, it's helping them move better, develop good flow, it's helping with the explosiveness and the power and they're getting their energy through the system, then I'm not going to turn around to them and say, no, it should be this, no, it should be that. Um, obviously, breathing with your mouth wide open, bad, bad, bad thing, okay? Um, other than that, I don't really have a preference on it. And I think you're bang on when you say that different martial arts have different ways of doing it. And, and it's quite common uh, for each martial art to claim that its way of doing things is the best. And sometimes there's more than one way to do it. So for me, to make breathing simple, breathe. You know, just in, in the stress of the fighting, just, just keep breathing. In some kata, of course, we have specific and prescribed ways of breathing. So, you know, you learn those. Um, good to experiment with a few different ways of doing it so you can find out what works best for you. But, uh, you know, I've come across a few effective ways. You know, after the way that I've seen um, uh, people make quite strong noises when they breathe or people say it should be silent. You know, it doesn't really matter. You know, the, the end result is if you're getting enough energy in and you're hitting hard and your breathing's not interfering with your movement but augmenting and helping your movement, to, to me, it's, um, it's, it's, it's fine. So, um yeah, so I, I share your confusion, Neil. If you were to look at them all, you end up in that, well, which one of these people is right? What I would suggest is it's right if it works. If it works for you, it's right. Um, and I hope that answer's okay for you. Uh, 
question two is from Greg Davis, and again, this one comes from Facebook. He says, as martial artists, do we need to study other styles uh, as a means to become competent in other methods of combat? For example, should one take up Aikido if they wish to swing a, a Joe or a Bokken effectively? On, or, on the other hand, does knowledge of one system allow us to adapt to such methods effectively? For example, uh, I use to, to fence, and I feel that there are many similarities which it shares with karate, footwork, balance, coordination. While not a complete combative method in itself, it does have many transferable skills. Could the same be said uh, for the kata, whereby the same angles of attack and principles are the same with a weapon in the, uh, the practitioner's hands as they are without? Uh, as an example, where, is, where this is commonly seen uh, in excrema, uh, where one set of attacks are the same with the, the knife, the stick, the empty, empty hand, etc. Um, so yeah, good, good point. So there's quite a few questions in there, but like, do you need to study other styles as a means to become competent in other methods of combat? Uh, the way I see it is, um, most of the martial arts specialize in given areas, d depending on what it was designed for. So you, you get the arts that, even the arts that are quite holistic, still tend to specialize in certain areas. Uh, so to give examples, if you want to learn throwing, go judo, because judo are the optimum throwers. You want to learn trapping, go see a Wing Chun guy. You want to learn groundwork, go and see Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. Clinch fighting, um, Thai boxers are fantastic at that, for, for, and plenty of other things too, but as examples, you know, so uh, all those arts, you know, they're not just good at those things, but they're the things where they tend to specialise. So I think that studying other systems uh, can help. So for example, for me as a karateka, uh, karate has throwing in it. My time in judo has radically altered the way in which I throw. Uh, the karate throwing, uh, well, again, my judo coach, when he first saw it, he said it looks like 1940s judo. <laughs> you know, and obviously, you know, so, which is probably exactly what it is, you know, it, it, it's, all, it's all throwing. And of course, judo's constantly def uh, refining itself and, and progressing and, the, you know, the working to throw throwers, so it Im improves a lot. So I think studying other systems can help enhance what you've already got. As regards the weapons question and the transferable skills, I think that's very true. If you can move well in one system, you should find that that will transfer over to other systems. You've got the idea of angling, you've got the idea of body control. Um, for example, when I, um, not that I've done much, but I've done a little harness with uh, Professor Dan Anderson when he visited the uh, the UK, uh, which was great fun. And some of you will have seen that footage that you know put up on the website where Dan hits me with sticks in my garden. <laughs> um, it was great fun. And Dan's a really good teacher and I enjoyed it lots. But one of the things that I, I noticed when I was doing that, this idea of using two hands, of using the weapon hand and the check hand was very reminiscent to me of the two-handed use in uh, Karate Kata, where, you know, you've got one hand doing something and the other one setting up, uh, controlling, clearing limbs, all that kind of stuff. So I, I agree completely. I think that the, the skills will transfer over. Uh, the danger is, in saying that, it, it would be no good if, if I said, oh, well, I've done some Karate Bunkai, therefore I'm the equal of an Arnis practitioner. Well, you're not, because there's levels in things. So... I think that by studying your core art, you can get a base that is transferable to other arts. But in order to gain those specialist skills, those skills that those arts have taken to a very high level, I think, you know, you need to study that art itself, you see. But it gives a, a footway in. And it's one of the things I like about um, karate and the way that I approach it and its kind of holistic whole view is I have this thing in the middle, this central hub called uh, kata, and from there, I have the spokes that I hang everything else off. So part of my karate includes things that I've learned from other systems. If I didn't have the kata there, 
it would be hard to join them back in. But because, you know, I can say, well, this is how it's done in karate, and you can go, and this is how they would do it in judo, and you see this movement here, well, you can do a very similar thing if you take pick up a stick and do it, and this is how they do it in harness. You know, you get a, um, a much more holistic approach. So, um, so do you need to study these other styles? You don't need to, to do it. But to get to the higher levels, I would suggest that you, that you do. But a fascinating question, Greg. I, I, I like that one... Um, like that one a lot. Okay, the next question we've got is a related one from Stephen Nash, and he says, "How do you feel about using empty hand uh, kata uh, for weapons forms?" Uh, I've seen some really good things done with that as well. I've seen some uh, very uh, clever stuff done where I've seen the pinan katas adapted for use with swords and tomfa and all kinds of stuff, you know, because. Uh, as we discussed in the last one, your motions are very similar. But if it was me, if I went to learn weapons, I'd rather learn a weapons cutter to teach me how to use a weapon rather than trying to adapt an empty-handed uh, form into a weapons cutter. Because uh, I don't think that works quite as well, despite the crossovers, of course. I just don't think it works quite as well. Um, but again, I guess that would depend on the type of the weapon. So, for, for example, if I... I, I studied uh, Iaido, the Japanese sword. I did about, you know four years of it so if someone said to me i want to learn to draw and resheath and the katana well okay i'll teach you some forms i wouldn't teach them pinanidan for example and try and adapt it to that i would teach them specifically those those weapons uh, kata um but uh if you think of like modern day self-defense if somebody said uh, how would i use a, a, a kabotan for example which are illegal in the uk by the way but you know talking to the, the international audience but um how would i use a kabotan or how would i use my mobile phone if i had hold of it as a weapon um, that kind of stuff uh i would suggest that the empty-handed forms there would adapt perfectly because there's very little difference between hammer fisting with the bottom of your fist in terms of the physical motion and then hitting with the end of a you know small uh, handheld or improvised uh, weapon there so i definitely think it can be done uh, and and you know it can be an enjoyable part of of, of practice but i would suggest that uh, if you want to learn the weapon seriously you should learn a cut that was designed for that um but that said you know if you want to adapt it too i don't see anything wrong with that it just wouldn't wouldn't be for for me uh, personally i like to keep my things uh, nice and specific So this question's from uh, Jamie, uh, Jamie Club, and he said, In light of the growing evidence that supports karate status as a comprehensive combative system, why do you still feel that the undeniable majority of martial artists, both karateka and non-karateka, persist in their belief of the quasi-traditional striking-only block-and-counter myth? Yeah. So, I mean, that's a good question. So why, when we've got all this evidence that karate was a much more holistic system in the past, why, why do people persist uh, in the, the view that karate is nothing but uh, but kicking and, and, and punching? And well, this, it's an interesting one, this. I should probably explain that that, comes, uh, that question comes off the back of a comment I'd put up on uh, Facebook. I'd put up a quote by Kenwa Mabuni, the founder of Shitoru, because uh, in 1938, in his Karate Do Numon book, uh, not to be confused with Funakoshi's similarly titled book, uh, but in 1938, uh, Mabuni wrote, he said that the karate that has been introduced to Tokyo is actually just a part of the whole. The fact that those who have learnt karate there and feel it only consists of kicks and punches, and that throws and locks are only to be found in judo and jiu-jitsu, can only be put down to a lack of understanding. 
And Mabuni then continues, those who are thinking of the future of karate should have an open mind to strive and study the complete art. Um, and there's a point, uh, that, interestingly enough, that's the most liked uh, thing I've ever put on that Facebook page. <laughs> um, so, uh, so lots of people seem to like that, that quote. So we've got all of this as well. You know, um, you've got, in fact, it's just so much, it's difficult to know where to begin. Funakoshi said it, Mabuni said it, Funakoshi shows, uh, throws in his book, um, in his early works, he shows. Uh, uh, the Gidambarai from Tekken being a, an armbar. Um, it explains uh, a movement in, in Basai as being a, a double leg grab. Um, there's just there's, there's just so much of kind of all that. We've got pictures of Funakoshi teaching throwing and um, where there's two students throwing and another student's pounding the other guy wise on the floor. Um, Mabuni talks, uh, sorry, uh, Funakoshi talks about engaging in, in, in grappling training to unconsciousness or submission when, back when he was a little boy in, um, in, in, in Okinawa. There's just so much evidence for this and as I've said before I mean probably the best evidence of all is just the kata themselves uh, movements that are very contrived double blocks or things like that when you look at them as throws and takedowns the motion makes perfect sense uh, which is why in the uh, Occam's Hurdle Katana podcast where you know Occam's Razor says that you know the simplest solution or roughly says the simplest solution is normally the correct one we have to go through all kinds of mental loops to get kata to be block kick punching rather than taking it as probably the more obvious thing that yes there's kicking and punching in there but there's also trapping gripping throwing choking strangling there's all that kind of stuff in there too so Jamie's point is you know why do people still persist in the, the belief in, in light of all the evidence we've got and I think we can break that down into a couple of parts first if we look at why non-karateka would think that I think they're fair enough to think that because the, the vast majority of karateka do practice, uh, at least at the moment, you know, the numbers are shifting, but at the moment, the majority uh, practice karate as a kick and punch art. So that's what they see, that's what they know. You know, karate is a kick punch art. Every t type of karate they've seen, that's how it's been done. Um, so their belief of what karate is as they've seen it is completely correct. Um, now, you know, people may come across the likes of myself and Gavin Mulholland's and Chris Wilder's and plenty of others who, who practice it more um, holistically and uh, then they'll have a different view of it but for most people the, the karate that they know is nothing but block kick long range punching so I get why they think that it would be perfectly reasonable to think that uh, within karate I think again we can split that down again so there are some karateka who aren't interested in the bunkai in the close range stuff it's not what they got into the martial arts for the like the culture of it, the, the like the way it feels to practice it, the like the art of it, the, the maybe really into competitions. You know, um, there's all kinds of things that karate can offer, aside from the the close range kind of fighting uh, self protection elements that we see in uh, in, in kata. Um, so it may be they're not, they're not interested. You know, it's just something they've got no interest in. So therefore, the look at the stuff we put out, the the evidence we present, the look at the historical stuff, the pragmatic stuff, and just go. Yeah, all very well and good, don't care, of no interest to me. And that, again, I'm fine with that. I have no problem with that whatsoever. Where I do have a slight issue is when people uh, refuse to accept that there's any bunkai in kata. You know, no, it's nothing but block kicks and punches. It's, 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 that, that's not the case. Um, and they deny the evidence that's, that's, that's put forward. Now, so if, if the genuinely of the view 
that we're making this all up, that, that there's nothing, Catra uh, is nothing but blocking and kicking and punches, and we've just been very creative in trying to force this to fit. What the need to do, if that's the, the view, that's that's great, you know, let, let, let's have that discussion because it'll be really useful, but if they're going to do that, the need to put the evidence forward. The need, when Mabuni said what he said in 1938, why was he wrong? When, when uh, Funakoshi shows grappling techniques from Kata within his books, why is he mistaken? You know, why were the guys that were there when this change happened, why are they wrong? Right? Um, there's, there's all kinds of, of evidence for it. Why is the idea that the Kata is blocks, kicks and punches, why is that a better explanation? For, um, for the motions. And again, I would refer people to the Occam's Razor um, podcast where we really look at that. Because simply just saying it's not there, you know, that's not good enough, really. They need to say it's not there and this is why it's not there, you know. Um, as I said in the Occam's Razor podcast, those who, uh, uh, for the, the Bunkai-centric viewpoint, if you like, uh, have put forwards an, an awful lot of information. We've broken down entire katas. We've shown the historical stuff. Um, we've, you know, quotes like what Maboon is uh, there. We've, we've shared all of that. It's all there for everyone to see. So the naysayers, um, if I can call them that, need to put the other side of the argument. They can't just, you know, go, la, 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 I'm not listening, because it just doesn't hold uh, any water. Again, if they've said, you know, okay, I don't want to look at it. I don't want to spend any time looking at the evidence. It's not part of what I want to do for my karate. I have no interest in it. Again, I'm fine with that. But to turn around and go, you're wrong. Well, okay, okay. I'm, why am I wrong? I'm not telling you. You know, that doesn't really move things forwards for, for their point of view. And you know, that might sound slightly challenging, really. But I, I, but I, I genuinely mean that because I think it would be really useful. I'd love for there to be an, like a, like a counter website to mine. I'd love to be um, JoeBlogs.com, where he points out why everything within the, the Bunkai view is wrong. Why it is blocks, kicks, and punches. Why, when these old masters said these things, why they were wrong. Explain all that. Um, I mean, I don't think you can, <laughs> but I'd like to see people try because, again, I think that will help uh, move the debate forwards. It'll be good for karate as a whole. Um, and the reason I think, you know, if we're honest about it, I think the reason why they don't do that, why they say it's not there, but we're not given any evidence for it, is because they feel to admit it's there, uh, that would be admitting there's a part of karate that they don't know, uh, they don't know about. And to me, <laughs> that's fine, because no one can know everything about everything. Every, everyone, to some degree or another, is a specialist. Um, you can't be an expert in everything. It just doesn't work that way. So there's elements of karate which I feel very competent with. There's elements of karate that I know next to nothing about. It's just never been part of what I've done. And I think we should all be a bit more uh, comfortable with that. Um, but to turn around and say, I'm denying the evidence because I'm not comfortable with what the evidence suggests... Uh, I think can be slightly uh, slightly problematic, I think. So um, I hope that's okay, Jamie, and, and I hope for the listeners as well. That raises um, the issues around that. But again, if you want more on this, or, or um, I, I was directed to the, the podcast we did, uh, I think it was January, January of this year, called uh, Occam's Hurdle Katana. And that's essentially what I look at in there is, you know, um, using Occam's Razor, what's the best explanation for kata uh, and in that i'll leave aside all the historical stuff and everything else just saying let's just look at it logically and if anyone out there listening to that wants to rise to the challenge of that you know that would be awesome you know because I, I really think there's a need for people to start putting the other side of the argument you know if we're going to uh, move it forwards and if, if people don't then us people who are into the bunkai side of things we've just got to forget about what they think and get on with what we do because they ain't gonna budge you know it's that i remember um 
James uh, Randi, who was like a kind of uh, psychic debunker, uh, once said uh, that when you're arguing with someone, if you reach the point where you realise that, you know, this argument's going nowhere, you have to ask the question, what would it take, what evidence would it take for you to change your mind? And if the answer is nothing, there's no point having that discussion. Because this isn't a discussion about um, the evidence. This is a discussion about, uh, like, rigid belief. Uh, and the, the evidence is an irrelevance to this conversation. And I would suggest the same kind of thing applies here as well. Um, when we find ourselves in these conversations, we've got to say, well, what would it take to you to change your mind? We've got quotes from the old masters. We've even got photographs of them doing it. You know, we've, we've got... We've got solid logical explanations for entire kata that explain every single part of the movement no part of the movement left unexplained um, if knife hands are blocked then why is your wrist across your chest why are you in the stance you're in we can explain all of that with a bunkai centric view all right uh, and if that's still not good enough you know what i mean if, if nothing is, is going to change your mind no evidence is going to change your mind i would suggest that it's not worth uh, having the conversation Next question is uh, from Paul Anderson, who says, good question, Jamie. <laughs> um, so I hope he was happy with the answer I gave to Jamie's questions earlier. And then he said, uh, considering you know what I've seen in Glasgow, that the majority of confrontations consist of posturing and intimidation, and in the end, there's no fight, uh, what are the best ways to understand expected behaviour and drill the non-fighting aspects of a confrontation? See, I, I think that's a, that's a really good point, that. And it's one of these elements that, uh, it's where self-defence and fighting differ. We've talked about this before in like the Marshall Map podcast and things that, that uh, what, what Rory Miller calls a monkey dance I, I really love that phrase I think it was um, you know Desmond Morris I think like anthropologist you know was, I remember reading about this and it, it's quite common through the animal kingdom that when two uh, members of the same species fight it's not good for the overall gene pool if they wipe each other out all the time so what they tend to do is they, they engage in displays in the hope that one will kind of back down you know so um we can certainly see that you know there's that that uh, animalistic posturing element making yourself loud making yourself big and uh, that does need to be uh, to be studied um what i suggest that we do is we, we talk to people who have lots of experience of that people you know the police officers and and, and doormen and and, and prison officers and people who deal with this kind of thing on a day-to-day -day basis can give you a good insight into kind of how that uh, those mechanics of those situations work and then what we do is we replicate that in the dojo so like we would in anything else you want to learn to um, to throw somebody you, you get somebody to resist your throws and you get in there and you actually do it so I think role-playing um, should be an important part of any dojo's practice if they're claiming to teach proper self-defense but we do it um, I think it's from our second grade upwards it, 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 for every grading they'll, they'll do some elements of that where either one person or two people or three or whatever we're doing depending on the scenario will we'll reenact it. The danger, I think, as martial artists, what I sometimes see is people do role playing, but it always concludes in a fight. You know, so it's just like it's like it's, so it's viewed as a prelim to the fight. Uh, what we, sh we shouldn't have that really. What we should also practice is situations where the guy playing the role of the attacker he may decide not to back down, so it may become physical, or he may back off, or, or, or may do something else. You know, we we, we need those options in it. Uh, and we need to cover those those skills um, in using verbal skills to kind of dissuade situations. You know, so 
Yeah, things like the LEAPS model. So, you know, listen, empathize, ask, paraphrase, summarize. So when someone's uh, angry with you, you listen to what they're saying. You know, you, 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 you uh, empathize with what they're saying. You know, yeah, I understand why you're upset on that. You ask questions, you know, so you understand their position. Uh, you paraphrase it. You put it their point back to them in your own words so they understand why you're mad. And then you kind of, you know, you, you summarize, summarize it. So that, and again, you know, it's just simple examples, you know, um, I spill my pint on somebody and that person's about to smash my face. And if I look, I, I understand why you're, you're mad. You know, I, I get that. I'd be mad too. You know, it, what can I do to put this right for you? You know, would it be all right? Let me give you some money. I'll buy you a new shirt. I'll buy you a new pint. I'm very, very sorry. And kind of using those elements of that leaps model, we can help diffuse situations. Um, and we need to practice that in, 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 dojo practice so in answer to Paul's question I would say role playing but not just as we would imagine it to be um, what we need to make sure we do in that is, is talk to people who have lots of experience of this people who come across it on a day to day basis through the nature of their employment and then make sure our role playing is realistic in the same way that soldiers train for war you know what they do is they say you know, experienced soldiers come back and go, this is what war is like, this is what we found. So they train new soldiers to, to, to those standards. You know, we're going to simulate that for you. So when you come up against it, you've been there before. It's not, not the first time you're in a war zone, it's the first time you've ever done it. And we need to do the, uh, the same kind of thing. But yeah, there's some good stuff on that as well. And I'm probably a bit of a preemptive plug here, but um, uh, I mentioned um, uh, what Rory Miller called the monkey dance. Well, uh, Rory Miller and Lawrence Kane uh, saw a, a, a manuscript uh, that sent me over uh, soon to be published. Um, and I, I won't say too much about it now because I don't know if I'm supposed to or not, but I'm, I'm sure they won't mind. But but that's on like the scale, slide, uh, sliding scales of force, you know, right, right down from, you know, talking a guy out of it right down to deadly force. Um, and I would suggest that when that comes out, that'll be a fantastic book to uh, to, to read, you know, on that kind of stuff. And there's plenty of other good ones too, but I was particularly impressed by this one. Okay, I hope that's okay for you, Paul. Okay, the next question we have is from Dave Moore, and he said, uh, should uh, karate club structure their kata around a particular way of fighting? Uh, and then he goes on to say, you know, rather than uh, other reasons, you know, just because uh, kata looks good or uh, grading syllabuses and uh, so on. And he says, it was your view uh, on the Pinans and Gavin Mulholland's uh, on Gojuru kata that got me thinking about this. So again, if you haven't read that, that's a great book. Uh, Gavin Mulholland's book, uh, Four Shades of Black, where he looks at uh, Gojuru kata and the specific order in which they should be taught, where you know one kata leads into the next, and and I have a similar view on the uh, the Pinans or the Hian katas uh, from a bunkai perspective. Uh, each one leads into the next. So Pinan Shodan gives us skills that we can lead into Pinan Nidan, which is why I think the original order was what it was, whereas most schools now flip them over, which you can do if you're just looking at the solo form, but if you're doing the Bunkai, it just doesn't work because you're te teaching things the, the wrong way around. But anyway, so Shodan leads into Nidan, leads into Sandan, leads into Yodan, leads into Godan. So each one gives you a set of skills that are then further developed uh, and supported by the following one. So... In my dojo, and obviously in Gavin's too, and I'm sure plenty of others, but the, the, the order I teach the kata is structured around our fighting method. So the, 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 we teach Pinan Shodan first, we learn all the drills with that, then we go into Nidan and so on and so forth. Um, now, 
do you always have to do that? Well, it depends on what your training objectives are, because there are some clubs, if I, I know one really good competitive karate club, you know, solid, that's what they train for, that's what they enjoy, that's what they're focused on. Um, so the way they do their katas is in uh, for competition karate. So they spend a lot of time on the katas that are on the official list, they make sure they perform them in exactly the way that the official list requires, um, and that's how they do things. A kata that's not on the official list, so for example, let's say like a techie or, or Nahanchi, is of no interest to them. So it, you know you can't do that in the opening rounds of a competition so therefore it's 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 gone they don't, they don't practice it at all um and that would be right for them because their training objectives are to win in competitions so that would be perfect for them it would make perfect sense if you're doing it in a very bunkai centric way i would suggest that you do need to order your cutter in a way that supports that uh, one caveat on that really is that although certain groups of cutter are designed to be used together for example you know the pinans as i've just mentioned uh, it's a mistake to look at kind of the totality of kata and then go, okay, yeah, so there's a definite order through them. Because what we need to remember in, in some styles today, uh, those katas that we have within the styles now, they were developed by different people in different parts of the world, in different points in history, that they weren't designed by committee. So what happens is people tend to look at the whole kata and think there's a style. What they forget is that the, the katas themselves are styles within themselves to a certain degree as well, unless they're designed to be used together as a group, as, as I just mentioned. Um, but overall, yes, you want to structure them that way. So in my dojo, we do all the pinans first, then we do uh, nahanshi. Because uh, that's a core backbone of what we do. We then progress through the other f uh, forms from there. So you know the one, next one we do after that is kashanku, because that would seem to be ideal. Because you know there's a lot of kashanku found in the pinan, so people have already got a foot in the door with that one. So that would be the next one to learn from there, and we kind of work our way up from uh, from that uh, that perspective. So I, I would say you structure your katas in the order that fits your training goal. So if you're training for uh, for conflict, then it needs to be bunkai focused in terms of the order you do your kata if you're training for competition then obviously it needs to be um, uh, another order but um, but yeah because if you don't do that as I said it gets all messed up if I started say teaching Yodan first for example why I do that I don't know but let's say I do then the students are learning almost the master class to the Pinan system before they've learned the combative basics. So if you're being Bunkai focused, and again, again just to give another common example, most people in, would teach Pinan Nidan, which is Hian Shodan in Shotokan, first, um, because that's the technical difficulty of the solo form. I don't do that. I teach Pinan Shodan. Uh, first, or what would be Hian Nidan first, because that was what Itosu labelled number one, and I think the reason he labelled that number one is because the Bunkai progresses, it's not the solo form, it's a progression of the Bunkai, and we've talked about that a lot more, and uh, if you want to know more about that, if you go to the website and um, check out the There's Nothing Peaceful About the Pinans, uh, would be a good um, good uh, kata to, uh, good article to start with, and there's also uh, there's the the Pinan Hians as a fighting system ebook that you can download if you're a newsletter subscriber as well. Um, so that that should kind of give you. So my, my question, yeah, it depends on what you're training for. If you're training for uh, for conflict, if you're looking at the bunkai side of things, then yes, it should be structured to uh, support that. If you're training for something else, then you structure the order of your kata to support that.
Uh, next one we have is from Fleming Anderson, and uh, he said, uh, I've attended five or six seminars here in uh, Denmark and Germany. Uh, always a pleasure, so thank you for that. Uh, he says, I'm a short account karate guy, and I have a few questions about uh, kata. Uh, you always say that both hands need to work. Do you have any examples where this is not the case? I mean, uh, maybe in a fight where one hand is injured or cannot be used. Um, so... On that one, yeah, so there's this two-handed rule. So when we look at any kata motion, uh, we need to be working from the perspective that both hands have been used. So we use both hands when we're throwing, when we're grappling, and when we're gripping. Okay, so, you know, there's certain throws, you use both hands to throw them. There's certain locks where you use both hands to apply that lock. Um, so we would see both hands used there. From a striking perspective, because we're close in kata, because it's civilian conflict that it deals with, and because we're close together, the non-striking hand, so one hand will be hitting them, or one elbow or whatever, but you know, one limb will be hitting them. The other one, the non-striking one, generally has one of two jobs. It will either be telling you where he is. So it'll be like putting the hand on the head. You see, for example, you elbow the palm all the time, don't you, in kata? And what that is, is during the mess of a fight, we need to locate the head. If he moves an inch, um, if I didn't have the head located, I would miss. So we have the hand tells us where he is, or we grab the arm, or we grab the body, or the hair, or you say we touch them in some way. It's a game, a tactile sensation, what they call proprioception. So I feel where he is. So in the mess of the fight, I've got my laser-guided sights locked on, um, and then I can whack more effectively with the other hand. The other use of the non-striking hand in kata is if the guy flinches or tries to protect his head. It's quite common for human beings. We protect the head. You know, if a loud bang went off now, everyone throws their arms up to protect their head. Nobody grabs the kidneys or puts a hand around the groin. You don't, you don't do that. You protect your head. So when these, you hit the guy, he's not out the fight yet, his arms shoot up to protect himself. We need to be able to strip those limbs in order to kind of press home the advantage. So the non-striking hand in kata, when we're looking at strikes, is either getting limbs out the way or telling you where he is. And if you start looking at that kata from that perspective, it makes a lot more sense. Whereas what we generally see when people look at is a lot of things explained away as ready positions or guards. So for example, if you do an oizuki or a lunging punch, the hand on the hip, what's it for? It's ready. Um, well, you know, it can be ready in a guard, you know, it'd be better if it was up, surely. It's not ready. What it's doing is it's pulling limbs out the way or pulling the other guy onto the shot. That's what it's doing. Um, so, yeah, we, we have that. So you have that ready ready position is sometimes explained. Well, the other one is guard. So if we look at like a shutuki or knife hand, where people will say, oh, the hand across the chest is guarding the solar plexus. Well, I agree getting hit in the solar plexus is no fun, but neither is getting kicked in the groin. But I don't do a knife hand with my hand over my groin. Uh, getting poked in the eye is no fun, but I don't do a knife hand with one hand over my eyes. You know, uh, The hand is there because it's pulling the other arm out of the way to allow the knife hand to go in. So that's the, the general point. So can I think of any examples where uh, only one hand's working? Well, yeah. <laughs> uh, there are a few instances where one hand will be uh, pushing a limb out of a way in, in, in preparation or you've moved and there are some, a small number but there are some examples in kata where it is only one hand that's working at a given point uh, but they are exceptions rather than the rule uh, so uh, when you're analysing kata you should always say what is this hand doing uh, and be relentless on it. Don't explain it away too quick. Go, 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 go. And sometimes you reach a point saying, do you know what? This hand isn't doing anything at the moment. Uh, it's not so much as well that the hand's injured and you can't use it. It's just that you, you know, you're using one hand at the moment for what you've, you've got. So it can be redirecting a limb is a common example. So you've passed with one hand to another hand to push it up to open up. Uh, there's some stuff like that at the start of uh, Pinan Nidan or Hian Shodan as well, for those who've, who've seen my DVDs on those. Um, so... Uh, 
so in the first instance, 99% of the time, if I had to put a figure on it, both hands have been used. There are one or two exceptions where it's only uh, one hand that's being used. And in that case, it's because for that particular technique, you only need to use that one hand. It's not because, okay, we need to teach you something just in case you've got a broken hand. A couple of reasons for that is one is in a real fight, if you break your hand, you won't even know you've done it because you'll be that pumped full of adrenaline. You'll smack your head against it and you'll shatter it. Um, I've done, done this, right? Snap bones, cleaning two in my hands, lengthways, right down the middle and never even felt it because you, you put, and that was in training as well. That wasn't even a real fight. It's just because you, you're pumped full of adrenaline. Um, so you just don't feel these things. Afterwards, you become aware of them, but at the time, you just don't feel it. Um, so I hope that kind of answers your, um, your question. And the next one is, is are there any examples, it's, this is from uh, Fleming Anderson as well, it says, are there any examples of defending against weapons in kata? Uh, loads. Uh, um, now, uh, we could do a, uh, a full podcast on this. In fact, I have. Uh, there is a weapons defense podcast if you want to go and have a, a back listen to that. But the, the essential point with this is, I don't subscribe to the view that you need two fighting systems. Uh, so, you know, you've got unarmed combat and armed combat, or defending against an unarmed guy and defending against an armed guy. Uh, if you've got that, you have a problem, because you're always, oops, he's pulled a knife, I need to completely change what I'm going to do. Now, as we, as we just mentioned, um, there are many techniques in kata which control a limb, get the limb out of the way so we can get strikes in. So through kata practice, we get good at controlling limbs. Now, if that as a bottle in it or an ashtray in it or a pint glass or a, or a knife or something, we still have the same skills there to control those limbs to get the head shots in. And what we want to be doing, I, I say this, I, I don't like the term weapon defense because it, it infers, I have to use it because everyone uses it, but I don't like the term because it infers, one is it's too defensive. So, you know, the idea is, you know, I'll defend. So the other guy gets the first move, he can attack and I'll defend. And the other one is that you're defending yourself against the weapon. You're not. If, if I put a knife on the floor, it's fine. It won't do any damage to me whatsoever if I don't fall on it. It's the guy wielding it. So you want to be thinking more of person attack than weapon defense, if that makes sense. So there's lots of maneuvers in kata that you can use, whether the guy's armed or unarmed, to kind of blitz, to control the limbs, to get the advantage, to scramble his brains, and to get the hell out of there as quick as you possibly can. Um, so... Technically and tactically, there's a crossover. Psychologically, obviously, there's a difference because as soon as someone's got a weapon in his hand, it can be slightly more um, frightening and um, a lot more frightening. So, you, you know, we need to prepare for that. But then again, it's just a matter of drilling it and practicing it. You know, if you've got the chance to flee, you flee. Always, whether he's armed or unarmed. You, you don't... So, you, you can't go to court on the basis that, well, officer, I was just about to flee, but then I realised he didn't have a knife, so I ran in and kicked his head in. You know, you're going to go to prison if you say that, you know, uh, and you're stupid if you do that. <laughs> you know, what, what it is, if I can run, I run. doesn't matter whether the guy's armed or not. When I get close to him, what do I want to do? Well, I want to escape. What do I need to do to make sure I can escape effectively? And it scramble his brains and get him disorientated so I can get the hell out of there. Same strategy, whether I've, whether he's got a weapon or not. What do I need to do enable to, to have that happen? I need to be able to control the limbs. Okay, so I can get the limbs out of the way and into the target. If the guy's armed, I already have that existing skill set. So I control the arms as best I can, get them out of the way so I can scramble and, and, and get my way out of there. So a lot, lots and lots and lots of what you've got in kata transfers over to, uh, it doesn't matter whether he's armed or unarmed, it's technically and tactically the same stuff. There are some motions in kata uh, where we're dealing with like specific weaponry. So um, I, I, there's a couple of like things where I can think of like uh, we take um, uh, 
like longer weapons like staffs and joes and stuff uh, i can think of some kind of motions where you can uh, they can be applied as stripping those off people and uh, uh re redirecting and, and controlling the limbs as, as, as you move in um, but th the point is you know I, I don't think you need two separate systems what you need is a system that'll work in both and and, and to, to me that's what we uh what we see in, in Qatar and um, <laughs> he's, he's got a third question but I guess he's been quite sarcastic <laughs> uh, which he says did you fight Chuck Norris and if so did you win well everyone knows no one can you know beat Chuck Norris you know it's that old thing you know Chuck Norris doesn't do press ups he pushes the earth down you know um, big fan of Chuck Norris mate I always used to read when I was a younger man really used to love and uh, enjoy his films and stuff so no 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 doubt about that you know I, I'm fully aware that I'd come off a poor second best to Chuck so wouldn't want to fight him and if I did no I wouldn't win either um, uh, and he says, you know, I'll see you in uh, Denmark in September. So, yep, I'll see you then, and I'll see everyone else in Denmark then as well. So, well, not the entire Danish population, but, you know, the people I, I normally see in uh, in Denmark. So, uh, so, thank you for that, Fleming. Uh, I hope that answer was uh, was okay for you. And again, I hope uh, everybody found that of, uh, of some value. So the next question we have is from uh, John Parker, and he asks why so many people choose to ignore Motobu when looking at the, uh, the tales of the, the old Karate Masters. Uh, and I think that, that's probably true that they did, you know, because a, it's a, no secret that uh, him and Funakoshi didn't get on at all, you know. And there's no doubt that Funakoshi is arguably one of the most, if not the most influential Karateka ever. So, you know, um, there was almost like a... a, a war of words there, a propaganda war if you like, and, and, and Funakoshi well and truly won it, which means that, you know, Motobu gets knocked out of karate history for a time. But there's no doubt that Motobu had a lot of interesting things to say, and he was very pragmatically focused. Um, you know, if I remember, if I'm quoting him correctly here, you know, nothing's more harmful to mankind than a martial art that can't be used in self-defense. I think that's an exaggeration. I can think of lots of things that are more harmful to mankind than ineffective martial arts. Um, nuclear bombs, for one, you know, that kind of thing. But um, yeah, asteroids smashing into the planet for another. But but yeah, I, I get, you know, the, the, the point. He was obviously a very pragmatically focused guy. And as more and more people have, have came to re-examine karate and look at it pragmatically I think Motobu is one of these guys that people just keep, keep coming over so um, I think his legacy now is starting to be more recognised for you know what it was and the, the great input that uh, that, he, that he had so um, I think a lot of again why was he ignored well you know he's not one of the big players in the main four styles either that might be another reason so if you look at um, Gojiru, Shotokan, Wadaru and Shitoru are widely acknowledged as being the four main ones you see um you know, although Motobu is there, in particular in Wado, of course, because he was one of uh, Utsuka's teachers, and you can certainly see the influence on uh, Wado's Kion Gumite. Uh, you can see an influence there, I think, anyway, from Motobu's two-person drills. Um, so, so he's there, and there's an influence there. But it, it, again, you, you, John's quite correct that it, it's it's widely, you know, not acknowledged. But he didn't start one of the major four styles. That's my point. Um, so, so people who aren't into the history, you need to go back. A, generation or two to find him and a lot of people aren't interested in that and I also think again you know because people weren't looking at karate from that perspective but now as people are looking back into the history they want to look at it more practically and functionally I think uh, Motobu's uh, finding his, uh, his rightful uh, place so yeah I think more and more people are starting to acknowledge the influence that, uh, that he had and um, uh, how useful he can be and his viewpoints can be for those of us sort of looking at things uh, 
uh, pragmatically. You know, it's got great things. You know, all in, in real combat, always strike the head for this is most effective. You know, that, that, that's the kind of advice that Motobu gives. Genius. Agree with him completely. The head controls all, smashing the head, the head goes off. It's the body's off switch. You can break a guy's arm, you can shatter his limbs, you can crush his testicles, he can still keep on going. Maybe not for long, but he can keep on going. It's, it's unconsciousness that does it. And if you read Motobu's stuff, he is very, very prag, uh, pragmatic. He also fully understood the idea of getting the first shot in as well when the fight goes re- alive as well. So a lot of good stuff from Motobu. And as I say, I think his, um, his rightful place is now starting to, to, to be acknowledged. So the next question we've got is uh, Richard Hang Hong, and he says, I would like to know your thoughts on the differences in karate styles and what you think each one brings to the table. So I'm going to give a very boring answer there, Richard. Uh, a truthful one, but boring, is that I don't really think it's about the style. Um, Mabuni said that there are no styles of karate, only varying interpretations of its principles. Uh, Funakoshi didn't like the idea of styles either. He said, uh, I have heard myself and my colleagues referred to as the Shotokan school, but I strongly object to this attempt at classification. Uh, Funakoshi believing, you know, that in his own words, all karate was one, you know. So I, I don't really think uh, that you can kind of differentiate by styles. You can't say um, uh, everyone who does this style is great and everyone who does this style is bad. What I found is as well is uh, that what the higher level practitioners... Um, of all styles tend to have very similar ways of viewing things. So if I was to get like a pragmatic Goju guy, a pragmatic karate, uh, a Shotokan guy, a pragmatic Wado guy, and you get them talking, you'll find that they'll probably train in very similar ways. Not because of the what their background is, their lineage is, not because of the styles that they come from, but because their focus of training, they're looking at realism, so their focus of training is similar. So therefore, naturally, you know, very similar things come out. Now, how they do the katas will be a little bit differently, and how the dress might be a little bit differently, and the kanji on the belts or the geese might be a little bit different. But in terms of functionality, it'll be uh, very similar. And I find that extends beyond karate too. Um, you know, my regular circle of training partners, I've got Thai boxers, kickboxers, various styles of karate, I've got some MMA guys that train. It, it, and once you start you know, throwing kicks and punches and sparring and whacking pads and things. It's it's all the same stuff, you know, essentially. It becomes very, very similar very, very quickly. I've even had that where um, I've I've been talking to people from, whether it be like Krav Maga or Jiu-Jitsu or whatever else, and and you suddenly realize you've got a great deal in common because the way you approach things uh, is the same, you know. And again, you know, there'll be difference in what style are you will be different, but the way in which you do those styles is very similar because it's the goal that determines how you train. Um, one of the things that, and you won't mind me saying this, but it's like Jamie Club's a real good example of that because me and Jamie, I come from that kind of traditional Japanese martial background, and J- Jamie's more uh, modern in his, his approach, more eclectic, I guess you could say. Um, but we have very similar training goals. So when we discuss things, me and Jamie often find we're very, very much on the same page, which probably delights and surprises us both. <laughs> um, but, but, and the reason we're the same, even though we've got very different backgrounds, is because we're training for, for similar, similar things, you see. So um, I don't really think that it, it's, um, it's about the style, you know. So, I mean, there's some you know, general things you could talk about. I mean, I think um, Shotokan guys are generally great for the way they coordinate the, the, the body. I love the way that Shotokan people move. Uh, Wado guys, gen- generally speaking, you know, they tend to in- introduce the ideas of Tai Sabaki and getting offline and yielding with the technique a little bit earlier. So we tend to see that. Uh, Goju guys, generally speaking, tend to do more on on the bunkai side of things it tends to be more an inherent part of what they do whereas you can uh, find quite a few 
Shotokan, Wadaru, Shitoriu clubs who never touch on Bunkai. Um, so there's, you know, general kind of trends, but, you know, ultimately it's not about the style. And what I found is that once you um, start focusing on the trained goals, it, it becomes quite similar. So it's more, not so much about the style, it's about how that style's being approached, I think, um, that ultimately determines what they what they bring. So, um, and again, if people want to know more on that, I, I did a, a podcast on it, and it's also on article form on the website called uh, Styles Are They Killing Karate? And that's my own kind of personal take on style. So if you want to check that out for more information on that one. So thank you for that question, Richard. Uh, the next one's also via Twitter, which is from uh, Josh Nixon, and he says, uh, thoughts on grappling versus striking in self-protection, uh, and, you know, how that compares with uh, the MMA-style sport, you know. Um, so this is an interesting one. So ultimately, okay, if we're going to do this, you know, when you're talking about uh, striking and grappling, you need both, you know what I mean? If, if you're going to be an holistic martial artist, you need to be including uh, both in your practice. You can't choose one over the other, you know, but bo- both need to be there. What will change is they'll be there to differing degrees and they might be uh, used tactically differently depending on the environment you're, you're training for, you know, or what a win is in that environment. So uh, certain things don't change. So, for example, a good cross is a good cross, or whether you call it a gakazuki or whatever name you want to give it. it, it it's, it's, it's the same no matter which environment it's used in. Uh, uh, being able to, uh, you know, Grip and dominate within a clinch. That's that's it's the same. It doesn't doesn't really matter. Good gripping skills are the same. Good throwing skills are the same. An armbar is an armbar. A choke's a choke. You know. But what can change radically when you change environment and contexts is um, the tactics that one would use. So if you're talking about self-protection and bearing in mind that many situations uh, involve more than one person. Uh, striking has the advantage that it doesn't require you to get hold of somebody Uh, and because of that that means that fleeing and positioning yourself is a lot easier the other advantage of striking is that it's what I would say is first touch so if I want to throw somebody I need to get both hands locked on in the right positions I need to get them moving the right way I need to get the balance broken and then I can throw them with striking I just need to get one hand to touch the jaw well not touch but hit the jaw boom that's it so um, striking can generally be speaking be a quicker way to take people out as well and it doesn't leave you vulnerable to multiple opponents so the priority for self-protection would be given to striking as a means to facilitate escape but that doesn't mean you can completely ignore grappling because let's okay what happens if the guy grabs you now if you've got no grappling skills you can't break free and that would be the objective so it wouldn't be so much about if you can out-grapple him, it would be, okay, I want to break free from here, or I want to use my grappling skills to set up my striking skills again, to get the limbs out of the way so I can headbutt him and I can elbow him and whatever else. Um, if I was uh, fighting, like, in a, a match fight, like, so we'll use the MMA-style fight, what I would do there is, of course, you want to, you might say, okay, well, I want to take you down to the ground. I want to, ac- I want to actively grapple with you. I want to actively take you down. I want to actively keep you on the floor, which would work very well in that context. If you were to transfer that same, uh, like, tactic into a, a civilian situation, so you grab one of your opponents, you flip him down the ground, you leap on him and start trying to armbar him, his friends will stamp your face flat. So it's not that the techniques change so much, it's the techniques that you would use change and the way that you'd use them would change as well. Um, so it's always uh, context. And everybody gets this, you see. It gets into all these daft things about, um, you know, uh, is MMA effective in self-defense? Well, all the MMA guys that I know, and I know a lot of them, who train practically as well, they're fully aware of this. They're not stupid. They know that um, uh, if 
if they're in a ring, then getting the guy down on the ground and putting on the ankle lock is great. But they wouldn't for a second dream of doing the same thing in a, in a live situation. Um, they understand that the context needs to change. So, you know, the skills that they would use would also uh, change and the, the tactics that would, they would use would change. So this isn't like an MMA versus self-protection thing at all for me. It's just you, you, you choose whatever you'd use. We all need to do that. There's things that I would use when I'm fighting or like, like um, sparring, if you like, that I would never dream of using in self-defense. There's stuff that I would use when I would do in judo uh, for example, if I'm on judo and I suddenly find myself on my back, what a great thing to do is turn over, flip on my belly, cross my arms in front of my body in such a way that it also comes up and protects my neck. Then I can't get armbarred, I can't get choked and strangled, and I'm hard to roll onto my back. If I was to do that in a, a self-defense situation, it's the worst thing I could do. I'm going to turn my back, I'm going to lie on my own arms, you know, so I can't protect myself and you've got, got free shots. So you can never divorce what works uh, away from the, the context or the environment. So I've always said this, it's a pointless question when people go, uh, this, would this work? Would this not work? That, that's a daft question. You need to add to that. Would it work in this context? Not work in this context. You can't divorce uh, function from, from, uh, from environment. So the general point, uh, I, I would say, is that um, generally speaking, uh, for self-protection, it's striking is the pri primary skill uh, with grappling to back it up. And in both instances, we're using the um, the striking and the grappling to facilitate escape. Not necessarily, uh, well, not to, to win the fight in the way that we would within a, uh, uh, like an MMA or a, or, or a match situation. So it's almost, if you want to put it in these terms, it's about anti-fighting rather than fighting, if that makes sense. And as I've said in previous podcasts that that's something that we need to practice in the dojo you need to practice breaking grips escaping running away uh, avoiding multiple opponents because self-protection wise that's uh, that's an important skill um yeah i mean once people get the idea the Marshall map podcast would help with this as well because i think once people get the context thing in mind they understand what's for what and it also frees you up to enjoy all elements of the martial arts you don't need to be doing things thinking you know is this practical you can say well you know i know it's not practical and and the fact that i know it's not practical makes it fine it's for something else it's for winning a fight in a cage or in a mat or in the dojo it's for something else or it's for art it's just for the the feeling of it the enjoyment of it the the the, uh, the way it makes me feel or, or i'm doing this you know for whatever reason you can do all of that stuff you just need to know where it is but when you're talking about like self-protection skills you know i would say striking as priority grappling will back that up and in both instances you're using that to uh, facilitate escape So the next one we've got is uh, Sebastian or uh, Shoto Seb on uh, Twitter, uh, and he says uh, asking about um, uh, practice at uh, home. So um, how to practice effectively on your own for non-black belts? You know, is training with errors okay? Um, so I get that point. You know, the idea is you know sometimes said that students uh, shouldn't train on their own because they'll they'll embed errors. I don't really agree with that, to be honest. I'll tell you for why I don't agree with it. It's because no one is error-free. Every single one of us, you know, um, can improve every technique that we've got. None of us have a perfect technique. It, it, you know, you, to have a perfect technique, you need a perfect body and a perfect mind. You know, none of us have those. So um, we've all got room for improvement. You know, um, you can take the most basic punch we've got. Let's say the jab, you know. Um, so I've, you can have a guy who's been jabbing for 30, 40 years. It doesn't mean it's perfect. He, can, he still has to work on it, and there's still going to be faults in there. So what, what I would suggest is for non-black belts, when they're training at home, what they should be doing is, you know, go to the class, 
get your feedback from your instructor, find out what the error is, and then work on it. So let's say, for example, let's take a, a let's say you're doing a kata. And in that kata, your instructor notes, you know, every time you do that movement, your knee's falling in, the knee should be pointing straight forwards, and you're letting it drop in a little bit. You go, okay, right, great. Go home and practice that, because you're aware of what the error is, and you can practice it. The danger, I guess, and this is true of everybody, not just non-black belts, the danger is you're practicing when you're unaware of errors, because they're the ones where you, you embed them, and once they're embedded, they're hard to get rid of. So have a clear idea in your mind of what the technique should be and then practice to um uh to work on those points and, and i try and do that at every um when i get together with the group train or and things i'm always looking for uh people to point things out you know or i'll notice things myself mm, i got caught with that one more times than i would like or i wasn't really landing that technique or that didn't feel as strong as i would like it to be so i observe things myself and i also get things mentioned to me you know yeah you know you, you've leg wasn't quite right there Ian and blah 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 and then I'll take that and I'll make that the focus of my training so I believe that everyone could train at home um, I was a regular um, home trainer when I was a uh, um, white belt you know it was just it was I used to come home from school and I'd start doing my karate in my cat and I'd practice and then you know you go back to the dojo and someone would point something out was right or wrong and then okay rather than waiting for the next class to practice it I'd go home and work on it um, and, and I found that to be uh, really useful you know so I think everybody can train in home and everybody should train in, at, at home as well uh, but we just need to be sure that in doing that we're uh, it's focused training there's that old saying, isn't there, of practice makes perfect, but it's not true. What practice makes is permanent, um, is the old saying. It doesn't really make it permanent, but you know what I mean. You know? So um, if you ingrain a good point or you ingrain an error, that can be hard to get rid of. So the old saying is perfect practice makes perfect is a better way of looking at it. So what we need to make sure that we do is we're aware of what we're practicing for, what the goal is. You know, So if it's you know a technique, technique's not strong enough and we're working on the bag at home, then know what we need to do and then, and then work on that to improve it. But I would encourage everybody to um, substitute uh, group training and partner training, uh, dojo training with some uh, solo training as well. Uh, but again, just be mindful and uh, be focused. And yes, training with errors is fine because everybody does. <laughs> There's nobody who has error-free technique. Um, the aim is, you know, the, the more clear the idea of perfection you've got in your mind of what a perfect technique is, the, you know, the better it'll be because you can zero in and, and focus in on it. But I think everyone can benefit from uh, from solo training. So I hope that's okay, uh, um, Sebastian, and I hope that covers that uh, sufficiently for you. Final question we have is from Peter Jones, who's Captain Tao on Twitter. It says, uh, how many kata do you know, counting the Pinan and Hian uh, series as kind of one, same for Kushanku, Kanku Dai. And so, uh, yeah, so but I do, uh, for the katas that I know, I tend to know um, a couple of style variations of them as well. So, for example, I know how Shitoru do the Pinans, I know the Wado Pinans, I know the Shotokan Hians, you know. Um, I know uh, Wado's Pasai, I know um, Shotokan's Basai Dai, for example, you know. So, if, if, but if we just counting those together as one kata and it's also I guess it depends on what you mean by no as well because for example I, um, there's quite a few katas that I can I can walk through that I know what goes where um, that I'm but I wouldn't say that I know them as such if, if we take as knowing as being uh, I feel that my performance of them is competent and my understanding of them is competent um, uh, um, 15 would be that so that would be the Pinan series which is five and then we've got uh, Nahanshi uh, Kishanku Sishan Chinto Basai Wanshu Rohai at least one of those version of it should be different from others uh, Niseishi Jite and Jion 
would be the, the main ones that um, that I've got, which is a kind of standard, you know, 15 really, that, you know, anyone that comes from a kind of Waddle background will have. Um, he then asked, he goes, how, of these, how many do you regularly practice? Well, I regularly practice all of those. Um, in my own teaching, though, it's a little bit different, is um, the emphasis is on up to Basai, so the, the five Pinan series, uh, five Pinan cutters, then Naihanshi, uh, Kishanku, Sishan, Chinto, and Basai. Uh, there's those are the core ten, if you like, and that's up to fourth dan. So we'll learn ten katas up to fourth dan. So that's what ten katas learn in twenty years, say. But we mean learn them. I want them to be really high standard. I want people to understand what every single motion is for. And then the other five that I mentioned, you know, they're there as optional uh, extra katas. They have to kind of pick one and specialize in it too, um, at the, the higher level. So they're there on the fringes, really. But in my own practice, you know, th those are, are all there. In, but my focus, though, is on the the, the Pinano Hian series and Naihanshi, they're the combative backbone of what I do in both my teaching and my own practice. But in terms of the, the katas that I practice, I practice all those those 15. Uh, what's my favourite kata to perform? Uh, Naihanshi is the honest answer because um, it, I always think of it as a raw kata. Um, there's, there's no flamboyance in it. You know, so sometimes you could look at a cat like Unsu, for example, or Shanku even, and there's some lovely nice movements in it and stuff, and you can watch it and go, oh, that looks great. But um, uh, Nahanshi, because it's so stripped bare, if you, if you want to use that terminology, um, when I've done it and I, I feel, yeah, that was done it well, that was, that was good, that means I've got the core fundamentals off. You know what I mean? So I, I like that one. When I do Nahanshi and it feels good, that's the core, the essence for me. So that's my favourite one to perform. Um, and my favourite one to watch, and he says, and I'm not limiting you to karate um, uh, kata here, um, be between, so let's say, uh, uh, and they're not even ones that I regularly practice either, but um, Sanshin, Tensho, and Nahanshi, uh, the ones I love watching this, because they are, I would say, raw core kata, and when they're done well, you can really see the skill come through. I remember uh, Chris Rowan been at a seminar once where Chris Rowan uh, is a direct student of uh, Goji Yamaguchi where he taught uh, Tensho Kata uh, and at the end of it Chris you know, he's a lovely guy Chris he's great Chris, Chris just said uh, you, know, does, do you know do you want to see it do you want to see me do it so um, so he gets up and does this cat and I was like, like wow do you know what I mean and it's not a cat with any great leaps or somersaults or anything like that in it but just the core motion and the movement was just uh, so beautiful so uh, for me I like those again I'm using the term stripped down but I hope you know what I mean by that but the, the, the cat where you have to have solid fundamentals you know really solid fundamentals to make it look visually impressive you can't impress with flamboyance on those forms so I, I love watching uh uh, th those ones, I think, of, of them, you know. So I mean, in competition captains, you know, you, you, yeah, you know, it's great when everyone does unsu and they do a lovely big jump and everyone applauds and it's wonderful. But for for me, you say like, um, uh, I love watching a well-performed Sanshin, a well-performed Tensho, well-performed Nahanshi, um, or Teki Shonan. Th those are the ones that would uh, that would impress me uh, the most. So I hope that's of uh, answered your questions there, Peter, and I hope that's of uh, interest to everybody. So that uh, concludes the questions for uh, this podcast. So that uh, almost brings this month's uh, podcast to an end. Uh, thanks very much to everyone who submitted the questions. I hope you enjoyed uh, listening to that. As I said in the introduction, we've got some main pieces on self-defense law, uh, another one on uh, multiple opponents, uh, and one one that I, I get asked a lot about, actually, is um, uh, about 
the lifestyle of a full-time martial artist, you know. Um, so I thought we may do a podcast on that as well called So You Want to Be a Full-Time Martial Artist, about the, you know, the pleasures and the pitfall of, uh, of that particular lifestyle. Uh, but I'm not sure whether there'd be enough interest in it, you know, because not everybody wants to do that. But, you know, anyway, let me know your thoughts. But we've got some, some, um, some main themes ready to go, and we'll be back with those soon. Uh, in the meantime, remember to keep checking out the videos, and there's new ones being added all the time, so keep uh, visiting uh, the website uh, ianabernethy.com to see the videos and as I say we're averaging about two a week so we're getting them up there quite uh, quite quickly at the moment uh, if you want to know the instant ones been put up uh, uh, Facebook or Twitter would be uh, good options so we've got uh, facebook.com uh, forward slash ianabernethy spelled I-A-I-N-A-B-E-R-N-E-T-H-Y so uh, ianabernethy and we've also got the Twitter of course where I'm at ianabernethy uh, I really do like Twitter and I've said this before I just I love it I, you know Facebook's good and I enjoy that that's great but uh, Twitter is definitely my favourite I, I really really do like it it's the immediacy of it and the fact that I can uh, um, very easily uh, communicate with people via Twitter when I'm away from the computer because I've got it set up so it's uh, done by text message uh, or SMS so as soon as you send me a tweet um, it comes through as a text message and I can reply as a text message as well so I don't need to be online or I even have an internet connection or anything like that you know so I love the immediacy of Twitter, so I think it's, it's a great way to chat with people and uh, for you to give me feedback on what you've seen and for me to let you know about new things going up. And uh, But Facebook's good. I, I like Facebook too, of course. You know, I update that um, uh, at least, well, try and do it every day, and you'll get to know about all the videos and stuff. So if you follow us on Facebook or uh, uh, follow me on, on Twitter as well, you'll get to know about all the videos and stuff as soon as they go live. And, of course, the newsletters. If you're not already a newsletter subscriber, um, you know, we send those out what, once a month or uh, once every couple of weeks if we've got something uh, new to tell you about so you won't miss anything if you're a newsletter subscriber as well yes okay so thank you very much for listening to these podcasts I say it a lot but I mean it I really do appreciate you listening in um, again always when I look at the listening figures for this you know I think thousands of people listening and I really appreciate you doing that uh, one of the favourite things I enjoy doing I really do enjoy putting the podcast together um, and you know the, as I've said before there'd be no point of doing it if nobody listened to them so thank you very much for listening in uh, thank you very much for telling everyone about them as well and uh, I'll be back with a new podcast uh, very soon so um, stay lucky have a great month and I'll speak to you soon okay, take care now bye